Welcome back to the Go In The Match podcast. Today I'm joined by the voice of Anfield, George Sefton. George has been the announcement box at Anfield since 1971, and it's safe to say he's the most well-known voice at Anfield. George, thanks for giving up your time today, mate, and thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, Best-known voice in world football, if you don't mind. That's Definitely. At least known face as well. <laughs> Okay, so I want you to take us back to your childhood and following Liverpool. Where were you born and how did your love for Liverpool Football Club begin? Um, I was born in Liverpool, in, strangely late, in the same hospital that all my kids were born in, Oxford Street Maternity Hospital. No oh, right. Um But I, I, I was brought up as a red. My dad uh, had a trial for Liverpool in 1923. Oh, wow. Exactly. Um, um, my dad was, you know, I was going to say strange. That, that's not fair. He, he had, he was set in his ways. Yeah. In our house, I was an only child. In our house, you know, it was just very old fashioned. He went out to work and went to the match on the Saturday. Yeah. We were, uh, my mum stayed at home and did the housework, and I sat at home and did my schoolwork. He, he only ever took me to the game once. And that was quite late on, not long before he stopped going. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, he got the match every Saturday. I never think about taking me. I don't know why. But um, the first game I actually went to at Anfield was January 1960. Okay. A month after Shanks came along, uh, we played Manchester United in the cup. And uh, I went with a couple of my friends from school. That was quite an experience. It was a whole new world for me. I mean, I, I yeah. went up to Anfield after school to queue up and get tickets. Um, and then when I when I got home, I think it was not long after my mother had actually died. I was living with her, uh, my auntie and uncle down the road. And when I came through the door, I think they thought I'd been in a car accident or something. There was just absolutely you know battered from pushing and shoving down this queue yeah and accidentally got kicked by a police horse as well didn't help <laughs> um, well that was quite an experience but with united then were the busby babes yeah you know, the the great united team uh just recovering from the munich crash they beat us 3-1 in the cup which was a bit of a disappointment was to be expected but after that, I started going on a regular basis um, to Anfield. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously, I've been at it ever since, one way or the other. <laughs> so is there anything from your first game that, that you can remember? So I think I've touched on every episode that everyone has that moment going up the stairs and seeing the pitch for the first time. Yeah. And it's it's weird. That's what with you now. I, I, even to this day, I say to people, you can't talk about Anfield unless you've actually been. Yeah. You watch it on the TV, you hear the noise, you see the colour, but until you actually get inside and feel the atmosphere of the place, yeah. it's got a special presence. Uh, it's just impossible to, to describe. You've got to go. And I know, I remember going in, and you know what they all say, the, uh, the the smell of the hot dogs. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the tea... The half-time cup of tea and a, and a pork pie you used to have religiously there every week. <laughs> I wonder now any of us survived that one, to tell you, for 
what was in the pies, I dread to think. <laughs> and uh, I remember there was an old joke about, you know, somebody asked the guy at the counter what was uh, what was in the meat pie, and this guy glared at him and said, meat, <laughs> as far as it went. Um, oh, God. But as I say, the crowd, the size of the crowd, you can't imagine the noise on the, until you get inside and hear it yourself. Yeah. And um, I, I, my first game, actually, I was standing in the old paddock, which was standing early in front of the old main stand. And it was only after that I started going on the cop uh, yeah. regularly. I know my my mate and I used to go, uh, used to get cure, get in early and get our spec or our backs <laughs> to the crush barrier halfway up in the centre of the cop. And if you didn't get there early, if you got there late, sometimes later on I went from work straight there and couldn't get my usual space and ended up jammed against the crush barrier. I didn't yeah. have to have two lots of crap ribs during my time on, on the cop. So I've, I've done, the, done my time. <laughs> All worth and it. People say nowadays I'm spoiled. I've got my own little room there. I say, <laughs> yeah, but... I'm entitled to this because I did my time. Yeah, you've earned it. Pushing and even. A hundred percent. So, can you tell us about how the role as the announcer of the club came about? Uh, yeah, I mean, going back before I started working there, when I, I first started going, there was no, uh, there were no loudspeakers, no nothing. Um, once in a while, you get the Scottish pipe band to turn up and annoy everybody before the game. <laughs> when we came up to the old first division, I think the, the FA insisted we got the tannoy system in. And, and in those days, it was one column of, uh, you know, the old big speakers okay. on the corner of uh, the, the the stand between, uh, the, between the, the main stand and the Anfield Road end. Yeah. Uh, and it was great because if you, if you stood... You know, the other end of the ground, you could just about hear it. Maybe stood that end of the ground, you came home with blood coming out your ears because it was so loud. There was no finesse to it at all. Then, um, as soon as that happened, uh, they got an announcer in, a DJ who who played music before the game and at half time and whatever. Um, the guy called Stuart Bateman was the first one. He was the one who introduced You Never Walk Alone in 1963. Okay. Um, a couple of years after that, he retired, uh, and a guy called Alan Jackson took over, who is now resident on the Isle of Man. I think he's. Oh, really? Yeah. No, oh, um, he's re he went to. He went to the Isle of Man in late 1970 on a six-month contract okay. um, to work on Manx Radio because in those days he was trying to get into the radio industry. Yeah. And this was his foothold, and he said to the club, I believe, obviously I wasn't there then, uh, look, I've got to take this job. It's my, you know, my future at stake. I'll leave somebody in charge who, who can do the job, and I'll I'll be back for the start of next season. The guy left in charge made an awful lot of bloomers. And one night in April 1971, I was at the match with my wife. This guy made a bloomer. And I said to, uh, I was sort of touching and 
being a real old grouch, I said, <laughs> this guy's embarrassing sometimes. And she looked at me and said, it's all very well for you standing down here. Yeah. You couldn't do any better. And I looked at her, I thought, that's a challenge. And for whatever reason, I went home, I got the old typewriter out, which is what you had in those days. Yeah. So a very long letter to the chief exec, Peter Robinson, which basically was an A4 side of paper that boiled down to, dear sir, gives a job. <laughs> and um, apparently they just, they were wondering what to do next because they were fed up with the guy too. Okay. Uh, and my letter landed on Peter's desk and he thought, this guy sounds reasonably lucid. Um, and they got me in just to see if I had two heads and <laughs> chat. Fantastic. And then, uh, decided to give me a trial. Okay. Uh, and in theory, the trial's still going on 49 years later. I've never actually been told, oh, you've got the job now. Um, really? <laughs> still plodding away. Uh, and the sad thing was that the, the first match of that season, August the 14th, 1971, Alan Jackson turned up with a bag of records. Uh, he was back from the Isle of Man. And uh, nobody had bothered to tell him that he'd been replaced, which was really embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, for me. But I mean, apart from anything else, that was the last thing I needed. I was, you can imagine how nervous yeah. I was doing that first day doing that. Definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, I remember going up the, the stairs to the old gantry and underneath the roof of the main stand. And I looked out at all these people and thought, what am I doing here? Yeah. Uh, I just froze for a moment. And then I thought, well, I've either got to go down those steps and get on with this or go home and pack a suitcase and go abroad for a few years. But nobody will ever speak to me again. <laughs> the family knew what was going on, the friends and whatever. So I gritted my teeth and uh, after that it was all hunky-dory. I mean, the first day was, was terrifying. But having got through it, uh, I was fine, and um, you know it's second nature now, obviously. Yeah, but at the time, that must have been great knowing that you were obviously representing the club that you love and that you yeah. follow. Yeah, I mean, I say the thing was, what I was saying, it was such a thrill just to go through the, the doors and the yeah. stand. I mean, obviously, I was I started out as a young lad like they do now, hanging around the uh, players' entrance, mm. you know, seeing who was coming and going, getting the other autograph, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, I'm part of the club. And even to this day, it still gives me a big buzz. That, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, I'm actually part of the, the Liverpool. I mean, um, Kenny Dalglish said I was part of the history and traditions of the club. Um, I said to my wife when I read that, I said, just take me outside and shoot me now because it's not going to get any better than that and uh, I'll stick by that. Yeah, definitely. So, obviously, you've got one of the best roles of the club going, really. You get the opportunity to carry on being a fan of the club. But in my opinion, you're also contributing a massive part to the results for the team over the years. You know, in my, in my opinion, you've enhanced the atmosphere for match-going fans and you can definitely tell that helps the players on the pitch. Over the years, have you noticed when your role has made a massive impact on the pitch or in the stands? Once or twice. Um, obviously, the um, 
the certain games. I mean, the 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 around the Chelsea game in two thousand and five. You know, the semi final we got to yeah. Istanbul. During that spell, I built up a, a routine of European nights, just basically just pumping up the volume and picking stuff to play that you know got the fans going, foot tapping stuff. Yeah, uh, tub thumping stuff, and and generally turning the volume up, uh, just not so you're going to kill anybody, but just enough to make people have to shout and sing a lot louder. And it did the trick. It was all part of you know the, the preparation for the game, and um, then you know that, I mean the, my uh, favourite was obviously Barcelona. I mean at the end of that, I was so pleased with myself that I. That the atmosphere that night just grew and grew and grew, and then at yeah. the end, when I put on "You Never Walk Alone" and the whole squad lined up in front of the cop and just stayed there, and then it, it was weird because when they'd finished, I was thinking, "Right, aren't you lot going home now?" And nobody was <laughs> moving, and I, I'd run out of music. I, I use a memory stick now to play, and that just finished. Everything had gone in and gone. And I looked on my desk, and there was imagined by John Lennon. So I banged that on, and then the whole cop took it up. And the, you know, the rest of the the, the stadium is still three quarters full, and they just joined in, and that was the most magical moment. Just I know, I know for a couple of days after that, I was getting messages from all over the world. I mean, uh, my favourite was a guy in. Uh, Australia. He said he was in Sydney Casino, early hours of the morning, watching the game on a big screen. And he said the place was full of all these big, hairy, muscular uh, Australian sheep farmers. And he said they were in tears, they were in floods of tears, singing Imagine. And uh, yeah, so it doesn't doesn't get me better. I thought the uh, the other thing was that Piers Morgan called me a genius on Good Morning Britain. Apparently. I don't like the guy, but I, think oh, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So something yeah. I was really keen to ask you: yeah. um, Is it difficult to have like to compose yourself when a late goal goes in, or something happens? You know, in the dramatic games we've had at Anfield over the years. So, for example, like you touched on there, Origi's goal against Barcelona. Is it difficult to compose yourself in those moments? Is naturally really? being a fan. Yeah, it's it's very. very I mean. I'm good at jumping out of my chair and banging on the desk and going yippee and then settling straight down again. I think yeah. it's just experience over the years. I mean, the first week I was there in 71, we had a Tuesday night game against Wolves. I know uh, when we scored the, the second goal that night, I banged on the desk just to cheer elation. And, I, you know, if you'd seen the state of my hand, my wife thought that, I've been in a fight when I got home. <laughs> but you get used to it. I know people have said that once in a while I lose it. Um, I think it was Olympiacos in 2005. You know when Stevie G scored the goal? Yeah. Got us back on the golden road. Somebody played me a recording of me announcing the goal and I really had lost it. I was hysterical because I was just so upset about us. You know, about getting knocked out of the Champions League after all that hassle. Yeah. And then we were back in it again. Um, 
And again, the other same season, the end of the Chelsea game. Um, if you listen, uh, there's a there's a YouTube clip of you never walk alone at the end of that game. On one of the clips, you can hear me announcing the six minutes added time. And then I paused. I mean, there was a, there was a pause between the fourth official holding his board up and me saying six minutes added time. Yeah. And I stopped and I sort of screwed my eyes and I looked. Does that say six minutes? <laughs> Where the okay, and then I come yeah. on down on the mic. There'll be six minutes of added time. And on the on the, the YouTube video you can see Rafa looking at his coach, he said, What did George just say then? <laughs> and then further down, uh, the blessed Jose Mourinho, my hero, not <laughs> he said, Did he say six minutes? And he's egging his players on. And then we got through the six minutes, and then I banged on You'll Never Walk Alone. And at the end of that, you can hear me giving a speech. It was like one of those wartime Nuremberg rallies when Hitler was barking at everybody. I would, I would, again, I'd lost it. I was, I said, you know, I've been coming here for all these years, and this is the best atmosphere ever, ever in this place. And yeah. it was too. I'm just. Um, could get over it. I, don't, I think what I do, I get into a state, and it sometimes I'll come home here, and I'm, you know, I come through the door. My wife will say, "Kettle on, yes, cup of tea," and just settle into my chair, and then wait till my blood pressure gets back down to three seconds. <laughs> and I, Take it all back in. And the, the day after a game nowadays, a big game like that, I'm always exhausted, just stressed out completely. Feel like you've been playing yourself. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, sometimes I, I, I say that I feel worse than the players must do by now. Yeah, yeah. So, can you tell us now what the biggest difference you see now within your role from when you first started? Is there something that stands out? Well, the two things. I mean, oh, I realised when I've been writing this book of mine, which is coming out next May. All good books, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I first started, I was just playing background music, really, uh, just to you know to keep their ears occupied before a game. Yeah. Over the period of time, it's graduated to the, the state where I, I'm thinking about building an atmosphere. I'm, I'm deliberately um, picking and choosing tunes that you know build up the, the volume as yeah. we approach kickoff. Of course, the other big thing is that uh, 94, when the, the stadium turned all seated, everything changed. You know, people say, is the atmosphere as good as it was then? And I say, well, yeah, but not for as long. I mean, when I first started, quite often, you know, the, the crowd would be in, I don't know, two and a half hours before kickoff. Strangely, like in the early 70s when Leeds were the big rivals I remember one day in particular I got to Anfield about uh, 12 o'clock for a 3 o'clock kickoff. and when I got inside you know, all the standing areas were full and by right. the time kickoff came I was shattered yeah. you know, I just slumped in my chair because of the, the sheer volume but obviously since 1994 all seater everybody coming to the game knows you know, when they're walking up the road, they're, they've got a piece of paper in their hand, and it says 
you're going to get in. You don't have to yeah. worry about it. Not only that, here's your spec. So, if they get, you know, get to Anfield, I don't know, 80% of the people who come um, will go in one of the pubs around or the hospitality areas inside the stadium. Yeah. Stay in the warm until it's nearly kick-off time. And then the last 10, 15 minutes before kick-off when the atmosphere starts building, you know, which is a lot later than it used to be. Once it gets going, yeah, uh, all being well, it's um, it gets it, it does get as loud. Obviously, we've got we're back to the crowd sizes we had in the early seventies. I mean, I, uh, the first season I was there, we had fifty six thousand in to watch Roger Hunt's testimonial. Um, nowadays the capacity is 54,000 so we're, we're near enough and because we've got so many more uh, stewards and catering staff and whatever there are actually more than yeah. 56,000 people in the stadium which yeah, uh, really helps so believe that you're going into your 50th season now yep. in the role which is an incredible achievement and uh, but I just wanted to ask when you took on the role at the club, did you ever envisage that you'd have such a lengthy spell on the role? Never crossed my mind. I remember at the end of my first season, going into Peter Robinson's office after the last game and trying to, in a roundabout way, saying, I'm coming back in August. Yeah. And um, he made some you know, flippant remark. Oh, yeah, of course, you're know, you part of the furniture now. But there was nothing concrete in it at all. It's um, and the years have gone on and on and on, and it's like waiting for the the thirty year wait for the time. Leo, these yeah. you know, a year goes by and another one goes by, and it sort of creeps up on you. And uh, you know, getting into the fiftieth season is just insane. I'd never ever have thought I'd live this long and you'll know, see what I've seen and do what yeah. I've done and be where I've been it's, it's, uh, it's an absolutely surreal is the only word for it so one thing that I was really interested to get your thoughts on so obviously you never walk alone being played as a fan I know there's never a time when, when I go to the match and it doesn't send shivers down my spine but do you get the same feeling or has there ever been a time when you played it and you could feel it being more emotional and passionate in the ground well yeah obviously uh, big games it's been mm. like that then you know the Hillsborough Memorials that sort of thing yeah um, and one or two other occasions have been I don't know um, when you know after Bill Shankly died and, and the same Bob Paisley um, and one or two other occasions as, as time has gone on it's it's well even now if I'm even if I'm driving in the car and it comes on the radio the hair stand up on the back of my neck yeah I'm never ever tired of listening to it I've, I'm thinking the most emotional one of recent years about four years ago I think five years we there was a dinner for the supporters in one of the lounges in the Kenny Dalgleach stand um and I knew, but most people didn't in the room. Jerry was gigging in Manchester, Jerry Marsden, and he'd, yeah. uh, he'd been invited to come, and he turned up quite late on when the dinner wasn't finished and all the speeches were finished. 
and he got up on the stage and he sang You Never Walk Alone and I've never heard anything like his voice still pitch perfect and you know the people in there were looking at him just so privileged to be there to hear him do it live yeah it was incredible I mean I'd been lucky I mean I went round uh, Norway a couple of times with Jerry and then he went round with the um, the Legends team uh, about 10, 15 years ago and everywhere we went the the, foot, the the team would play against local legends or whatever and Jerry would sing You Never Walk Alone live before the game and then he'd do a concert in the town afterwards and uh, it was just such an experience just to get to know the guy obviously yeah, going back to my youth you know he was he was a hero you know that I'm old enough to be have been in the Mersey Beat here when uh, there was Jerry, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Beatles, uh, the Undertakers, the Searchers, people like that. And um, if only we'd known, you know, yeah. where where we all going to end up. Where we are I, now. I was talking to a guy on another podcast this afternoon. I was. Um, talking to him about the, the film they made about Bill Shankly uh, about four or five years ago, Shankly Nature's Fire yeah, I presume you've seen it it's been on yeah. TV a couple of times yeah. but I went, went to the premiere of that at the Philharmonic Hall in Liverpool with my son and it was an incredible experience just to see myself on the big screen just yeah. to that weird but then I was saying afterwards that um, 50 odd years previously I'd been sat in the Philharmonic Hall at school speech day listening to the, the headmaster giving his talk and whatever and sitting a few rows back was Paul McCartney Wow! Uh, another few rows further back George Harrison, people like that Yeah. and if somebody had said then where well, we were all going to end up all these years later <laughs> that you've been on drugs here, really, and and here we are. It's it made a really, really strong point to me that you know everybody starts off from somewhere. The other, yeah. That's why I I'm very keen to play local local musicians who've got uh, new songs out because I know that's what happens. These guys they're starting out one you know another ten years they could be superstars. Yeah. Or you know, cleaning the toilet somewhere, but it, it they need they need a push, they need exposure. Yeah, and, uh, they were the classic case. So uh, it was just just absolutely crazy the the way the city was then. Yeah, like you say, people just need the platform and the opportunity, don't they? That's I suppose it, yeah. that's where a lot of like you know famous people from Liverpool have come from. From yeah. and Liverpool is a sort of city where people get behind their own, don't they? And oh, true yeah, passion. So finally, the podcast is centered around going the match. So with every podcast we're doing, I want to end by asking, what are your top three favorite matches you've been at? So it doesn't have to be based on the 90 minutes itself, but it can be based on something that happened during the day or for whatever reason. So, I mean, you've definitely seen your fair share. Yeah, I'm thinking there's a couple that spring to mind. Uh, the obvious one, St. Etienne, but I think that's probably my fourth favorite. Before okay. we started working there, we we had a game against uh, Munich 1860 or the other team in Munich apart from Bayern, and we okay. beat them eight nil. 
in the Cup Winners' Cup. And it was such an amazing display of football. People say, oh, there must have been rubbish. They weren't that night. I've never seen Liverpool so uh, so much on song. I mean, Munich beat us 2-1 in the second leg, so they, you know, there weren't any slouches. <laughs> um, then... Oh, yeah, the Chelsea game in 2005 I was talking about before. Iconic. Not just because of the result, but because of what it meant historically. And you know, I was at the Heysel Stadium and um, I promised my lad, who was only uh, 12 at the time, that the next time Liverpool got to a European Cup final, we'd go. Because he was too young. And then, of course, the disaster happened. We were banned out of Europe, and I thought we'd never get there again. I really, genuinely thought Liverpool would never get to another European final. Yeah, I thought it'd kill us. So the the fact we got through to the final in Istanbul made meant so much to me personally. Yeah, uh, was was amazing. Obviously, the way it happened, you know, the the one nil, the dodgy goal. I still don't think it, the goal went over the line. But <laughs> I hope not. Uh, we deserved. We deserve to get through against that shower. Definitely. Um, and then, of course, Barcelona uh, last year was still the most amazing night ever. I mean, the way it all fell out. If you'd written it as a, uh, a film for TV, people would say it was too far-fetched, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Well, it was. I mean, they Barcelona coming to our place were 3-0 down they're the best team on the planet they've got Messi and Suarez and the whole shooting match uh, we've had two of our star players cropped we had no chance absolutely no chance and a lot of people just turned up that night I think just to enjoy the football and see you know how it went on and then uh, Divic scores and you think oh 3-1 okay Half time, we're still only one nil to us. You think, well, never mind. And then, right after half time, Genie scores two goals, and then we're looking at each other three three. You know, um, no, no way goals to worry about. No, um, no, no, nothing. You know the, um, and um, then that corner. You know, I can still see it in my mind's eye now that you know the way it went to you know to corner to us, the ball boy, uh, who actually I don't even know if you realise the ball boy who threw the ball to uh, Trent that night. He's actually on Liverpool's books. His name's Oakley Canonier. Oh right, okay. He's got a great future as a striker. It's, his reactions are spot on. <laughs> I watched the ball. I saw Trent put it down and walk away. And then all of a sudden, he's back. He's kicking the ball in the direction of the goal. And nobody's moving. Everybody except Divock Origi was just standing around waiting for the referee to blow his whistle. And then the ball's in the back of the net. And I, I'm, I didn't announce the scorer for a while because I thought he's going to disallow this he's going to say yeah there's got to be something and then all of a sudden no he's given it he's given it and we're winning I was lucky to watch it 
well, we've got this, what, 20 minutes odd to, to survive. And if, if Barcelona, you know, just sneak one dodgy goal without, because they'll have the away goal and we won't, but they didn't. And then at the end of the game, again, the referee blew the final whistle. And nobody seemed to realise it was in the, the corner underneath my window and uh, the player suddenly stopped. And then what seemed like, you know, five minutes, obviously about 10 seconds, and all of a sudden everybody jumping up and down and we're through. And it was just unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And then I was just, I was telling you earlier all this business about playing, you never walk alone with the, the squad joining in and then imagine and then going home buzzing, absolutely buzzing. It was just amazing. It just doesn't get, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't. So I don't think there's a, a better way to end the podcast than talking about Liverpool's biggest and best Champions League night. So just before you go, George, I just want to say a massive thank you for giving up your time today and coming on. I really appreciate it. If you haven't already, please subscribe, follow and share. And of course, leave a five-star rating.